Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Trump wants to return to the Oval Office a little over 24 hours after being released from a three-day hospital stay for the treatment of COVID-19. That's according to Bloomberg sources. In the meantime, more coronavirus infections emerged in the White House while it appears to be ignoring rigorous contact tracing around its own outbreak. Trump's physician, Sean Conley, issued a brief memorandum today saying that the president reports no symptoms of the disease and his vital signs are stable. But there are questions about Dr. Conley's statements because of his upbeat assessments of the president's health and his refusal to answer several major questions, including when the president's last negative COVID test was. In fact, Conley acknowledged on Sunday that he had made misleading statements the day before about whether Trump was ever administered supplemental oxygen. My guest is health care attorney Harry Nelson, managing partner of Nelson Hardiman. Harry, explain why Trump's doctor can't disclose his medical information without Trump's consent. So uh, federal law, HIPAA, the Health and Information Portability Accountability Act, prohibits physicians and other healthcare providers, hospitals, from sharing patient-protected health information without the patient's consent. Uh, what, so technically, the doctor correctly needed uh, President Trump's consent in order to share his information. What made the whole thing strange is that, obviously, in a situation where the whole country and the whole world is concerned about what the state of the president is, the president had authorized him to talk about his health, but he was selectively picking and choosing areas that he didn't want to talk about. Did the doctor misstate the law or misrepresent it when he said, there are HIPAA rules and regulations that restrict me in sharing certain things for his safety and his own health and reasons? So Dr. Conley was playing fast and loose with what HIPAA actually provides. HIPAA gives every patient the right to decide whether or not a doctor can share their information. In the middle of the pandemic, there's a lot of pressure on patients to authorize their providers to share health information with people in need. Clearly, in this situation, President Trump had authorized Dr. Conley to talk about his health information. So he had essentially waived uh, his HIPAA rights and consented to the disclosure. So for Dr. Conley then to uh, pretend that uh, that somehow HIPAA was the limitation upon him was misleading. Really, if any limitation was upon him, it was the president saying, you can share these facts, but not these other facts. That's legal under HIPAA. A patient can say, you can say this, but don't tell them about that. It's unusual. It is technically, it's true that the patient's private, the patient's health information is private, and it's a patient's decision, decision about what kind of information they want to release. Uh, it just it seems that uh, uh, Dr. Conley was comfortable sharing favorable information, but had had some reservations about sharing 
particular details. So it's possible that, that President Trump uh, had instructed him not to. It's also possible that, that Dr. Conley was just trying to stay on message and, and uh, not wanting to uh, go beyond the script that had been given to him. So you have a public concerned on several levels, not only the COVID, but you have a president who has demonstrated slurred speech, trouble lifting a bottle, some you know repetitive speech patterns. So there is really no way for the public to know what's behind those various problems. It's interesting. You know, it's it technically, again, patients technically control their own health information. There are exceptions. Uh, when it's for the public health, there is not a national security or kind of uh, any kind of uh, a political override on HIPAA. So it's true that it really is a decision by the president and by his administration how much to share in these situations. But obviously, uh, there's a heavy cost to, to not sharing information, uh, which has been leading all, to all the speculation and worry about what the president's health really is. You said that is a public health exception. Here, knowing the timeline of Trump's infection would help with contact tracing, but his doctors and Trump are not revealing when his last negative test was. So is that a public health concern that might be an exception to HIPAA? Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most troubling aspect of this from a legal standpoint, is the way that HIPAA is constructed, the public health authorities, local and state and federal, have the right to demand certain health information and to have disclosures so they can decide what to do with it. So for the administration to be making and for the president to be making unilateral choices about public health issues that affect other people uh, is concerning and is inconsistent with HIPAA. Uh, And my understanding is that the Center for Disease Control actually stepped in and offered to take on some of that public health function by doing contact tracing of people who were at some of the events. Uh, and have been declined, which is uh, both unfortunate and contrary to the to the spirit of HIPAA. There are certain states, I believe, that if someone exposes another person to HIV, they can be prosecuted. So what about someone exposing people to COVID, deliberately not wearing face masks or deliberately going into an event where there are lots of people knowing you have COVID? I mean, is there any possibility that for an average citizen, that could be something they could be prosecuted for or sued over? So there's been a lot of talk about this and not a lot of action yet. There's been a lot of a lot of speculation that we're going to start to see lawsuits uh, and potentially criminal liability for people who are reckless. Uh, and who expose others to disease, those laws are certainly in place in every state uh, for people to be held responsible, either uh, financially uh, in a civil case, if somebody gets sick and, and blames somebody else for uh, for exposing them to, the, to a, a disease for being negligent uh, or reckless, and uh, and likewise for the authorities to pursue it and prosecute it criminally. So I think I think those cases are coming, and it's um, it's a little bizarre to have the President of the United States be uh, one of the most talked about possible test cases uh, for people who feel that he behaved recklessly in exposing them. What are the penalties for doctors who violate HIPAA and give out information about their patients? So one of the things that's really important to understand about HIPAA is that it's only enforced by the federal government, by the Department of Health and Human Services, but there are very severe financial penalties uh, up into, uh, depending on the number of people affected, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
about as much as $10,000 per, per violation. So, um, so for doctors, you know, the risk of uh, a HIPAA penalty or HIPAA violation comes from, has to come from the federal government, but it, it can be uh, quite severe. And we've seen a number of, a few medical practices and a number of hospitals pay multi-million dollar uh, fines for not being careful with people's privacy. Could doctors potentially lose their licenses? No, there's no there's no provision within HIPAA to allow for a doctor to uh, uh, to lose his, his or her license. The only way that a doctor could actually lose their license would be if a state medical board, which is the in every state polices uh, uh, and regulates the licenses of doctors, decided that a doctor had behaved so unprofessionally that uh, that the, that the disclosure of patient information um, merited. Uh, uh, a disciplinary action. That that would be separate from HIPAA. It's been it's we ha- we have some pretty extreme cases where doctors have gotten into uh, privacy violations that have led to uh, uh, you know suspensions and revocation. I don't know about about uh, outright loss of licensure just for a disclosure, but in the context of of other activity where where a doctor misused information in their uh, uh, possession and and behaved unprofessionally. Um, that issue comes up every once in a while. There are nurses and orderlies in the hospital who are seeing what's happening. Are they bound by HIPAA, or could they reveal some of the details of the president's care, like, oh, he's on oxygen? So that's a great question. So the the, the, the entire workforce of a hospital is bound by HIPAA. Technically, the hospital, in this case, uh, is, is the, the HIPAA-covered entity, but its entire workforce, including all the staff, all the orderlies, all the nurses are responsible to HIPAA, and the hospital has rules to ensure that, that everybody at Walter Reed is following uh, uh, the, the policies to ensure HIPAA uh, privacy. And what will happen if any of those nurses or, uh, or, or staff go to uh, CMZ or Us Weekly, which has happened in other celebrity cases, the hospital will be at risk of millions of dollars of penalties uh, under federal and state law, and generally those people will, uh, will lose their jobs pretty quickly. Generally, candidates for the presidency don't release their medical records. They release letters from doctors. Usually those letters are glowing. I mean, President Trump, his first letter from a doctor, the doctor has come out now and said that he dictated the letter to him. So are doctors liable in any respect for misrepresenting a patient's health? That's a really interesting question. I, I haven't seen a doctor held responsible for that, but it, it's certainly imaginable that a doctor, you know, when a doctor uses the privilege of his or her license to make representations and uh, make those representations about the state of somebody's health uh, that's required for them to fulfill a particular duty, it's certainly imaginable that a doctor could be subject to professional discipline or to perjury for making false statements. Um, and it's uh, it's interesting to watch these issues play out because. Um, clearly, there, there, this is, uh, I mean, the, the pandemic has made this issue worse. But to be honest with you, this issue has been coming up more and more in healthcare. Uh, the is- issues around neurocognitive decline and, and what people's true state is over aging and over other issues is, is really, uh, is definitely a matter of public concern. And it's something that doctors should be taking seriously when they're making these statements. There is no law saying the president has to disclose his medical records, just as there's no law saying the president has to disclose his tax returns. But that's right. Should there be a law? I think there should be. I think there is a public right to know 
the health and uh, um, and to be informed of, of important issues that are affecting the health and the ability to perform a function uh, of people in in highly sensitive roles. I think we expect that in every other part of our society. We don't we don't get behind uh, um, you know we don't get into a plane. Uh, without being worried about the state of the pilot, we don't go under the knife in a surgery without worrying about, uh, you know, the, the state of the surgeon. We expect the people who regulate those industries to be policing that. And here too, the public has a right to know and a, a right to be protected uh, from a uh, from somebody in a leadership position nationally having a, uh, a disability. I don't follow sports very closely, but every once in a while you hear a league saying, oh, this player has tested positive for COVID. Are they authorized by the players to say that? Is it something in the contract? Yeah, so what's happening is the league in their contract uh, give teams, the players authorized in their contract, uh, the league and the team to disclose their information. It's a very important part of, of, uh, of the NFL and of every league to be able to announce which players are um, on the disabled list or, or, or not, aren't going to play on a particular game. And so the players authorize that information up front. So that's, that's absolutely part of sports league. One of the big interesting trends that we're seeing with COVID is many uh, employers and many large companies are now requiring employees as a condition of coming back to work to not only to be tested, but to, to share the information if they are, if they do test positive with their coworkers or with managers so that everybody can protect themselves. From, uh, and know if they had a potential exposure. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Harry. That's Harry Nelson, managing partner of Nelson Hardiman. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Lower courts are continuing to deal with lawsuits over everything from the deadlines for accepting mail-in ballots to witness signature requirements. The Democrats have been suing for months to ease rules for mail-in ballots given the coronavirus threat, while Republicans have been intervening or suing themselves, raising claims of potential voter fraud. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Is there any way of telling, like right now, who's won more lawsuits? Uh, It's a a tough call because there have been so many preliminary decisions that are being appealed. Um, 
uh, but broadly speaking, if you're looking at which side it has rulings in their favor in some of these key swing states, the Democrats seem to be coming out ahead in terms of uh, suing to uh, make it easier for folks to vote by mail um, during the pandemic and to make sure that their ballots uh, get counted in a timely fashion, given some of these mail delivery delays that we're expecting. Um, so the Republicans, of course, are, are appealing a lot of these decisions. Um, and it is unclear what will happen with those. Uh, but for right now, the way that things stand, the Democrats do seem to be coming out ahead. So what are the basic charges, or if you want to say the most popular charges that Republicans make as to why a court should reject accommodations being made for COVID-19 in voting? Well, the more technical reason is that the Republicans here, uh, whether it's the state or national Republicans, and sometimes the Trump campaign, uh, claim that these changes were made improperly, uh, that, uh, for example, the state legislature uh, didn't have the authority to make the changes in the, the time that they made, um, or the secretary of state for a state, which often is the top election official in the state, uh, needed the approval of a legislature to do it, uh, the, the measures that they took um, in order to ease voting. Um, but also, you know, one common theme in all of these allegations from the Trump campaign and the RNC is allegations of suspected widespread voter fraud. That's really, you know, echoing what the president himself has been saying for months now, uh, that this expected surge in mail-in voting is going to lead to a, a basically a rigged election that the Democrats are actually trying to steal the election by making it easier for people to vote by mail. You see that theme throughout a lot of these filings in, in all of these states. Regardless of what the specific claims may be, whether they're constitutional or not, they have this theme of allegations of fraud. We've heard President Trump complain about mail-in ballots. And one of his claims is that when a state automatically sends out mail-in ballots to all registered voters, it will definitely lead to fraud. I know there was a case in Montana. What have the judges decided in those kinds of cases? Yeah, the Trump campaign has, has sued um, over state plans to mail uh, ballots to all registered voters, but also they've sued over plans to, to mail uh, applications for mail-in ballots to all voters. Uh, but in the cases where they, they've sued over the plan to mail ballots, um, they, they seem to be coming up short here because when they're, go- when they're going to court and making these arguments to these judges, um, they haven't been able to provide evidence that automatically sending ballots to registered voters is going to lead to fraud. It just sort of, it, I guess, is that simple. In the case of Montana that you mentioned, a federal judge uh, just last week threw out the Trump campaign's lawsuit over uh, that state's plan to send ballots to all voters and said that uh, the allegations of, of fraud in that case, specifically in, in Montana, were a, quote, fiction. Uh, so the judge really uh, completely rejected that argument. And uh, even during the hearing in that case, um, before the judge issued his decision, the Trump campaign's own lawyer uh, conceded under questioning by the judge that they hadn't been able to produce any evidence of fraud in Montana with mail-in ballots, even though mail-in ballots have been used in that state extensively for 20 years, including during the primary that they had earlier this year when it was all done by mail. They couldn't produce any evidence of fraud, and the judge tossed the case out. What about Nevada? Same story there. And of course, that's uh, more of a swing state, pretty crucial in, in Montana. The the issue, by the way, was that there is a very uh, tight race for the U.S. Senate that could help flip control um, of the Senate to the Democrats potentially. So that's why there was a big focus on Montana. In Nevada, it's an important swing state. They were also planning to send ballots to all voters. Uh, the Trump campaign sued over that plan, and, and that was also thrown out. And that was 
thrown out by a judge appointed by George W. Bush um, in that case. And he also said, sorry, no fraud here. Case dismissed. Speaking of swing states, there have been several lawsuits in Pennsylvania. I know against the drop boxes. Tell us about those lawsuits. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on there. The RNC and the Trump campaign had sued over plans to expand the use of ballot drop boxes, to extend the deadline for counting um, ballots, and to ease the signature matching requirements, noting that a lot of people are going to be mailing ballots for the first time, and a lot of times the signatures don't quite match or they're missing, and they give, want to give folks a chance to fix that error uh, before just throwing the ballot out. There's also lawsuits over the use of poll watchers at the polls in Pennsylvania. And at first, the dispute was uh, split between state and federal court. And the federal judge put the case on hold and said, let the state court rule on this first. To let us know if the Pennsylvania's changes for the election fit with state law. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that that was okay, that was valid. And uh, the federal court restarted that case. And right now, the Trump campaign and the RNC and the Pennsylvania election officials who are Democrats have filed competing motions for summary judgment to win that case without a trial. Uh, that was just over the weekend. There's a Pennsylvania case that's pending before the Supreme Court, and the justices haven't decided whether to take it or not. What is that about? Right. In that case, the top court in Pennsylvania and state court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, sided with Pennsylvania election officials and their plan to allow ballots to be accepted up to three days after Election Day. Uh, the Republicans are trying to get that overturned. They want to go back to the original rule that has been in place, which is that the deadline is the evening of Election Day. And obviously, the Democrats want as many ballots to get counted in the state, especially given some of the delays in mail delivery. They expect that with the surge of ballots, they could be flooding in for days after Election Day, and they want to make sure those get counted. There's a concept called ballot harvesting, which sounds awful. Explain what that is and why the Republicans seem to be winning in that area. You know, that, that is a, it's a good question because in a lot of states, um, they have rules that limit or restrict uh, completely so-called ballot harvesting, which is really just where groups um, will go around and, and collect the absentee ballots of various voters and then deliver them to election officials. When there are rules in place against this practice, it is uh, in the name of voter fraud, preventing voter fraud. And notwithstanding the fact that the GOP and the Trump campaign have not been able to produce evidence of uh, rampant uh, fraud from mail-in voting in general, um, a lot of courts have said we're going to go ahead and keep this particular rule in place because it's a good way to prevent uh, voter fraud and that that's a valid prevention effort. So you mentioned the deadline for accepting ballots, and states have different rules. Is there one preferred method that the courts seem to be accepting? They do have to be postmarked by Election Day, but the question this time around, given the expected flood of mail-in ballots across the country, one of the real questions is, what about those ballots that are lacking postmark? And that's going to be a real concern about whether or not uh, ballots should be counted if they arrive uh, within the extended deadline, but don't have proof that they were mailed by Election Day. Democrats are arguing that they should be assumed to have been mailed by Election Day as long as they're arriving within that deadline, uh, that, that all these thousands of ballots are going to be counted, that they should go ahead and count those ballots as well. Um, and uh, Republicans are against that as well. If they argue that if 
it doesn't have a clear postmark proving that it was mailed by election day that even if it arrives within that extended window, it should be tossed out. There's also a requirement that becomes harder to get in this day of COVID for a witness signature to your ballot. Do a lot of states have that requirement, and how is that faring? They do, and Democratic groups and the National and State Democrats have uh, been suing states that have these restrictions in place under normal years saying that during the pandemic, this requirement for a witness signature should be lifted. Uh, and the Democrats have prevailed in a lot of states on this argument. Judges have agreed that, yes, when we're dealing with a highly contagious uh, virus, uh, they're requiring voters um, to essentially go up to a neighbor or a family or friend or whoever and ask one or two people, depending on the state, to, to uh, sign their ballot, that it's just too much of a risk. And they also present arguments and evidence that uh, this witness requirement doesn't necessarily prevent fraud anyway, that there's not really any cases, uh, if any, where uh, a witness signature exposed a a fraudulent vote. So they just argue it's another wall being put up, another uh, effort to restrict the vote, especially during a pandemic. And in previous years, these witness requirements haven't really been Uh, focused on a lot in in court because mail-in ballots simply weren't used as much. But obviously this time around, they're really focusing on this and they want to make it as easy as possible for people to cast ballots without having to put their health at risk. In past elections, have states been allowing people to correct errors in their mail-in ballots? Uh, Yes, it's called a a cure period. And a lot of states do allow that. Um, And they want to focus on some of these lawsuits uh, is to extend the deadline for allowing people to cure those those issues. Um, again, because of the expected surge and a lot of people voting by mail for the first time, there's arguments that people will make an honest mistake and forget to sign, or they their signature doesn't quite look right because it's changed from what's on file, or for whatever reason, it, it, they, they didn't sign it the way they normally do. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of ballots get rejected uh, even during primaries and during general elections with in a normal year. So when we're talking about um, a surge in November, the, there could be a surge in ballots thrown off for this reason as well. And Democrats, again, are saying, give people more time to correct these errors. Uh, Republicans have the opposite view. There was so much litigation over North Carolina and what happened there. What's the situation there? There is litigation in North Carolina over some of these issues that we've uh, been discussing here. Um, they have a, a bit of a unique situation there because, the, as the courts have pointed out um, in these recent rulings, they have a, a history uh, just back from back in 2018 uh, when there was a big scandal in North Carolina over mail-in ballots uh, that were uh, illegally harvested and, and, and uh, by a, a Republican political operative uh, who was trying to get more ballots uh, for Republicans in, illegally and they ended up having to redo uh, their election there, and it, it's uh, uh, caused a, a big scandal, like I said. So the judges are, are wary of that, and the Democrats um, are having a harder time getting their arguments to stick there as a result. Can you tell us a little bit about the guy who's heading the Democratic operation, so to speak, with all these lawsuits? Tell us a little bit about him. Uh, yeah, his name is Mark Elias. He is an election lawyer with Perkins Coie in D.C., um, he is running a, a huge team of lawyers uh, across the country. They've been filing a, 
of dozens of lawsuits, some of the big high-profile cases that we've been discussing where the Democrats have had some, some big victories um, in court as well, settlements with states where they eased their rules. Um, this has been uh, his, his brainchild, and uh, he was uh, the, the lawyer for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, he, rep- he represents now um, the DNC and the state national um, Democrats in various different lawsuits, as well as um, some more left-leaning um, nonprofit organizations that are sometimes behind these cases. Um, and, you know, there's dozens of them. I mean, he, he, uh, his effort, he calls the four pillars of, uh, of mail-in voting during the pandemic that he wants each state that they're targeting to have set in place rules for making it easier to vote, like witness, getting rid of witness signature requirements, uh, extending deadlines and things like that. And he's, he's been pretty successful. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.